You're listening to episode number 21 of the Insignificant Others podcast. I'm Brett Featherston. And I'm Rob Flint. Rob, how are you doing today? Doing well. Doing good, well, Brett. Good, good. So this podcast was a lot of fun because um, I love doing research and, and listening to stories of Congressional Medal of Honor recipients. Yes, I, I do as well. And we were, we were fortunate, enough, fortunate enough to have the opportunity to sit down with Mike Thornton, who is a Congressional Medal of Honor uh, recipient. Recipient, yes. I was I was corrected. I yeah. think I said won the Congressional Medal of Honor, and he said, you don't win it. Yes. You awarded it, you receive it, but you don't win yeah, it and true. For, for very obvious reasons. But uh, Mike uh, was a great storyteller, so he's going through the story of everything that happened on that day when his bravery was so great that they awarded him this medal. Yeah. It, it's a fascinating story. I mean, he, he is a true American hero. Um, and, and what he did and what um, his men did in, in the face of some serious adversity during the Vietnam War is really incredible. And the fact that he's still alive today is, is oh, amazing. Yeah. He's a complete badass. And, and what he's doing now, his work today is equally impressive. He, he really supports the armed services community and does a lot of work. In his office, when we were there, there was tons of paraphernalia with him, with Ross Perot, with presidents. I mean, yeah. he really does a lot of work even to this day. Yeah, and to that end, he's he's got a foundation, the Michael E. Thornton Foundation, and and people can check it out at themetfund.org. Um, and uh, I would encourage others to read his book, um, that that provides a detailed account of of his uh, military career and 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 again the events that that transpired to him being um, awarded the the Congressional Medal of Honor and the book is called By Honor Bound so um, it's a great story yeah and I really hope you enjoy him telling it yes. All right, we're back with episode 21 of the Insignificant Others podcast. I'm Brett Featherston. And I'm Rob Flint. How are you doing, Rob? I'm doing well, Brett. I'm doing great. I'm really excited about our guest today. Uh, today with us right now, we have Mike Thornton, who is the recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor, the highest award that can be given to uh, anybody in the military. Mike, thank you for joining us. It's oh, great it's to have you. It's a great honor to be here. Well, it, we're, we're in Mike's office just to kind of set, this, uh, set the, uh, the stage here at your foundation in Addison, Texas, in uh, great memorabilia around the uh, office. So, again, we're excited to be here. Thank you for, yeah. for sharing with us. Uh, looking forward to speaking with the Salesman's Club, and uh, it's a great everything they do for our kids and, uh, and education and everything else in this great uh, community of Dallas. Well, well, thank you for all you do. Uh, we've had the privilege of speaking to you for about uh, 10 minutes prior to starting this, and, and you do a lot for uh, people in the military and the community. So thank you for all that you do. So yes. for, for those of you listening that don't know, the Congressional Medal of Honor is the highest U.S. military decoration awarded by Congress to a member of the armed forces for gallantry and bravery in combat at the risk of life above and beyond the call of duty. And you were awarded this by President Richard Nixon at the White House on October 15th, 1973. That's got to be a special time for you. It was a very special time for me. I, uh, of course, received the award, which I really feel I never deserved and never will deserve. But uh, it's a great honor because I wear the medal 
for all the young men and women who served before me, served with me, and is serving after me to keep this great nation safe and free. So uh, you've got a great story, and I want to get into it, but uh, you're one of the founding members, original members of SEAL Team 6, and, and one of the first members of really what became the SEALs. But before we get into that, uh, you grew up in South Carolina. What was growing up in South Carolina like that helped make you the man you are today? Well, I, I, we kind of lived out in the hills, in the, in the foothills of the mountains, and uh, my father was uh, probably my greatest uh, mentor or advisor before uh, growing up out there in the hills. And uh, my father, he kind of reeked, as I said before, of integrity, uh, leadership. He treated everybody uh, like they all were equal in the eyes of God. Uh, my dad joined the Army in 1937 and got out in 1947, and uh, he had his own company, and people worked for my father for 30 years, and uh, I always asked him, well, why do you work for daddy? You know, it's, it's not the most uh, financial means in the world. He said, well, because your father's always fair, and he's always there for us. Yeah, and that's fantastic. Uh, now, what was high school like for you? Were you an athlete growing up? Yes, I, I've always been a great swimmer. Uh, my uh, my father could swim a, a stroke. My brother and I both swent uh, in school and stuff like that. And I was a good athlete, but I had dyslexia so bad back then, uh, and I didn't know what the word dyslexia was. I knew I was studying hard, but I was going backwards. Every, all the effort you put into studying, and uh, actually, uh, I don't. I never even graduated from high school. I. Uh, I joined the military on a 120-day program, and, uh, and uh, I said I always wanted to be a Navy frogman, and uh, saw the crazy movie Richard Whitmire uh, be a Navy frogman in Korea, and, and I saw the movie The Five Sutherland Brothers, which all five brothers died together, and that reminded me the inspiration. My father said family's, you know, blood's thicker than water, and uh, I just thought there's that family you know, strength there of my dad and being a Navy frogman, and here I am today. So I, I get the impression from some of the information that I've read that uh, in high school, you wouldn't really be classified as the ideal student. No. <laughs> and not I'm not all. talking about from the grades and the dyslexia. Yeah. And, uh, and from some of the tales you were telling before, that may have lived on past high school, too. Oh, uh, yeah, it did. Uh, actually, <laughs> uh, my great accomplishment, I uh, got suspended more times in one year than anybody in the history of Spartanburg <laughs> High School. So, so I love that. to hunt, fish, and water ski and drink a few beers, too. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, that's got to be up there with, with receiving the, the Medal of Honor is being suspended from high school for that long. Um, all right, so y your dad was in the military, so you followed in his footsteps. Was he in the Navy also? No, my father was in the Army. He actually got left in the Philippines. And uh, when MacArthur left, my father became a raider, and he was actually working with the indigenous personnel, and they were doing hit-and-run operations. And I never even knew this until after I had my second tour to Vietnam. Interesting. Okay, so what made you want to go into the Navy? The Navy frogman. I always just for the frogman. I, 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 wanted, to be, I wanted to be a frogman. I saw that crazy movie, and uh, I just said, "That's me." So you 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 enter the Navy, and I've read where uh, I guess after you went through basic training, you were assigned to a ship, if if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And and the the experience that you had during that time, you were um, offshore. 
was really something that inspired you to, to become a frog man and never want to go back. So is that... Is that and, and that's, that's very true. I, I'm just glad that the ship was off, off the coast of Vietnam. The ship was decommissioned, so that opened up the door. Okay. Because usually you'd have to spend almost four years. It's not that way now. Okay. But you'd almost have to spend four years in the fleet. And then, but when the ship was decommissioned, it, it enabled me... And I went through, uh, I did the uh, exam, you know, the uh, physical exam and everything else. And uh, I probably wouldn't have been in class uh, 42, except I had to get a 10-point waiver because uh, I couldn't pass the uh, entrance exam of the, the, uh, the SAT scores. My ARI were very high, and my mechanical was very high, but my grammar and trying to read, as I said, I had this luxury, and I had to get a 10-point waiver, so I had to wait a little bit longer than I wanted to, but here I am today, so don't don't give up and don't quit. We all have obstacles in life, so you go under it, go around it, yeah. jump over it, or whatever it takes to do to get, get the job done. So you talked about, you described this to us before we started recording, but the difference, you said frogmen. I think people know the Navy SEALs and probably don't know the difference. Can you explain that for us again? Uh, we first came out with the underwater demolition team in mm -hmm. 1943. And, of course, that's what the Navy frogmen you see on the beaches and World War II and Korea and then Incheon and all that stuff. Well, they decommissioned them after World War II. They recommissioned them for Korea and uh they did all the uh, beach operations. And uh, when President Kennedy, of course, he was in the Navy, uh, when he was the president, they started the Army Special Forces in 1962. So they commissioned the Navy SEAL team, it was 75 guys, and they commissioned them in 1972, and we weren't actually made public to the, the world till 1973. So when I went through training, it was called Underwater Demolition Recruit Training. And what year... Did you start training? I started in 1969. 1969. So I have a question because when I've seen the pictures of you um, as a younger man, um, you look much bigger, and I mean that in a flattering way, you know, like a, you know, kind of a hulking, you know, strong man. How, what was your size compared to some of your, your classmates? Um, and then even those who uh, graduated with yeah. you, were you – much larger than them? Well, actually, I, I was about the average size in my class. Okay. I was six six two and weighed about two two eighteen two twenty and had like a thirty one inch waist. Uh, of course, <laughs> they they worked you out big time. They tore you down and rebuilt you. And uh, the average size of seals now you look at are about five nine or five ten. And but they do have some big guys. You look at the Latrell twins. Uh, they're both six four and, and weigh about. 230 so i mean these big guys it's all in your heart it's, so i say it's when you go through training only one person makes you quit and that's yourself so right. you sorry brett but you i guess you you started with 126 129 129 and then from what i've read what 16 or 14 we, made it we we graduated with 16 but four more uh, went back Due to injuries, and they went back and they graduated with the next class. And and at that time, um, the training lasted for how long? Uh, uh, about approximately uh, sixteen weeks. Okay. Now and, it's now it's about twenty six. And weeks. this was in Coronado. That was in Coronado, California. Okay. And back then, only a portion of you went to SEAL team, 
and we didn't even know what SEAL Team was, and everybody else went to the UDT teams. At that time, they had a training base on Virginia Beach and yeah. also one in Coronado. So, I mean, everybody is fascinated with with um, the SEALs, the training that you guys have to go through, not only the, the physical aspect, uh, and, and it's being so grueling, but the mental aspect. Can you share some stories, you know, off the cuff that just – Things that resonate in your mind about your experience um, that you then had to overcome and look back on with, you know, I don't know, either either tears of joy or <laughs> or this thanking God that you made it through. Well, you know, uh, the mental aspect is the uh, toughest of all the aspects. I mean, we will actually get your body in shape and uh, and uh, push you to the limits, but we want to see how you're going to react when you're so tired. That's the reason we keep them up all hours of the night. We push their body and they're wet and they're cold especially even and the water on the east uh, west coast always stays right around in the 50s so it's no matter when you roll it no matter if it's summertime or wintertime and and i know that year it snowed in san diego and that was in 1967 and uh uh uh, but when i was an instructor i tried to push guys to the hilt you know and i was in charge of one of the uh, uh, we had 12 on and 12 off, and I was in charge of one. And I tell the guys, okay, you guys are doing a great job. This be like Wednesday night at midnight, and their their butts are dragging, you know. I'm going to push you guys. Gosh, you guys remind me how I want to be a Navy SEAL. And you guys, I God, I'd love to operate with you guys. I want you on my team, you know. These guys, who are and start their Thornton. And so I said, take another 30 minutes, and we're having mid rats over and at the chow hall, and these guys. Ooh, it's Dr. Thornton. So I talked with my guys, my team guys, and I said, hey, go get a flatbed. And they went and got a flatbed. And I said, I want you to wake up this bass right now. They started singing Ring Ding Doo and all these stupid songs that we sang back in those days. And uh, I said, you guys impressed me so much. Put your boats up there. We're going to walk back. We're not even running back to the to the uh, and the train units on the other side of the base. So I had them all going. And, and I said, I come on guys let's keep this us open wake these guys up me you know tell them to get out of their racks and sing they're singing and singing and yelling and i get them over there and they're all standing out in the front of the grinder i'm up on the pt platform i am so impressed with you guys i will let you guys go to bed and this is like one o'clock in the morning i want you guys to go to bed and get some rest and be here at 0600 tomorrow morning. Is that okay? Who got instructor torn? And so I had them, you know, they're freezing. They're over shivering. They went up there, and you couldn't even see nothing. I walked up, and they couldn't even see. I was walking around. The showers are hot as it can be and taking these hot showers. And some of the guys weren't even taking showers. They just jumped in bed. So what we did, we went up there. This is about let them just fall asleep and about – one thirty, quarter till two. We had another breakup. We started throwing uh, firecrackers underneath the rack and <laughs> opened up blanks and sixty calibers and throwing smoke grenades. Get out on the get out on the grinder. And they're all they're all in there trying to get their clothes on. <laughs> so I got them out there. You went back and were a buds instructor, and uh, I don't know. There's something about if I think if I was a Navy SEAL candidate and I I saw you as my instructor, I'd, I'd be thinking twice about it. Be, be very intimidated. I had a bunch of admirals that they they love me now, but they hated my guts back then. There were a bunch of young guys out of the Naval Academy and stuff like that. But uh, so for you, where 
when when you were at your lowest point when when you went through training okay what what place do you go to mentally like what what would you think of to to separate yourself your mind from what was actually going on in the external world and then finding that place where you could just you're there you could make it through i think it was the the i'd think about my father and what he'd gone through and stuff and my dad said you never quit you never give up you know and he said if it's to be it's up to me and and then and that's the thing is that's what everybody says you know if i don't do it who's who's going to do it you yeah know? and that's where i always tell all these kids if it's to be it's up to me that we all have obstacles in life and uh and this is just another obstacle you know this is something like i said it's in between your brain because i knew they i thought they were going to kill me sometimes but i knew they weren't going to kill me because training would have ended a long time ago so yeah but uh, be, but you got to have faith in yourself. Yeah. Faith, and you got to have faith in uh, something greater than you, who you are. So you graduated from from the the buds, correct? And prior, and that's in nineteen sixty nine, correct? So between that time and the events on uh, October thirty first, nineteen seventy two. So before we get to that, what was your Time light. You were in Vietnam for most of that, right? In Vietnam and 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 and, and somewhere in the far east, Middle East, we were places that we don't talk about. So, uh, uh, but it had something to do with Vietnam. I can say that. And I was in Vietnam with uh, Charlie Platoon, which is a great bunch of guys. And I think of people like Mike Lacaz and Hal Kirkendall and Mike McCready and these guys that we all graduated together. And part of us went the SEAL team. Now, like. Jesse, the body Ventura's older brother, went through training with me. We went through training like two years before Jesse did, and his older brother went to UDT, and so did Jesse. He was never in SEAL team. He was always in underwater demolition crew training. He stayed in three years and got out. But uh, we went to SEAL team, and uh, 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 as I said, I wanted to be a frogman, but when I got to SEAL team and saw what it was all about, I, I'm, I'm grateful that I did get together so um, I'd love to hear, uh, I've got every Congressional Medal of Honor winner, their story of their bravery is on the website that, that supports the, the Congressional Medal of Honor. But I'd love to hear, uh, in your own words, kind of the events that happened. Well, uh, actually, uh, this was going over for my fourth time over in the far, well, the Middle East, is what you call it, and I was in Vietnam. and. We actually had a period of time in uh, April of that year when I first got there in 72, they started pulling all the American troops out. And as in September the 6th, they pulled the last large uh, army force out of Udup. Uh, Udup was, uh, was north east of the Dang City, but they still had uh, Air Force pilots there, support craft, and we had the, the Navy ships off the coast to give us gunfire support. But and as the everyday soldier, everybody had uh, basically left, with the exception of Army Special Forces, Marine Recon, and uh, Navy SEALs. And what we did, we worked as advisors to the Arvins, uh, to the we had the Louis and was Navy SEALs, and also we had the, the what we call the Sea Cadets, and we worked as advisors to those guys. And of course, they had the. Uh, the Royal Marines, not the Royal Marines, but the Vietnamese Marines, which was a very large unit, and we had guys in advising them. So you're trying to train basically the South Vietnamese 
for when all the pullout happens, how they can support themselves. Yeah. Well, you know, you, those guys have been fighting the war. I mean, every time I go back to Vietnam, I'd see the same LDNN Vietnamese SEALs. Those guys have been fighting it. You know, it's not like we go home, they're fighting it 365 days a year, you know. And, right. Uh, and uh, but a bunch of great guys. Uh, they they love their country. They're great. They're great uh, guys to work with. And of course, if it hadn't been for two of them, I'd probably be dead today. So, uh, uh, and uh, we got a phone call, uh, basically, early October, uh, that they wanted us, to, Tommy and I, to do a recon up up north because the NVA had already moved across the Quaviet River, which was the DMZ's like. 14 clicks north of that which is a military zone and uh so they had taken over quite a bit and actually they were trying to take over the quan tree which they almost did during the wake of 1968 and they were moving towards way city again which uh, of course the marines and the army had big battles during that period of time and tet and tet was bad in 69 uh, that was kind of like their chinese so Chinese New Year, uh, New Year every year, so we, which we are going through right now, right? And uh, so that's and uh, finally in 1970 they actually had a ceasefire, and uh, but of course it got back to you know the hard work and dedication. So um, they wanted us to do an operation up there, and so we were we were chosen. Tommy was chosen. Tommy said, "I'll go if I can take." Uh, the person I'd like to choose, uh, and they, he chose me. Even though we'd never worked together, never operated together, we knew of each other. We knew of each other's uh, backgrounds. And so. just for the benefit of our listeners, you're referring to Tommy Norris. Which uh, is a Medal of Honor yes, recipient. Yes, another uh, Congressional Medal of Honor recipient. Correct. Um, but who will play prominently in the story that you're going to tell us here. Correct. Now, was, was he your senior officer? Yeah. Okay. Well, actually, our senior officer was Commodore Shibley, Dave, and he was uh, he was an 06, and he was, had all Navy Special Forces uh, working for him, but he was down at, outside of Saigon. And then he uh, he gave his message out to my lieutenant commander, Tom Nelson, and Tom was the actually the senior officer in the field, and he had two other young officers that worked for him. And actually, I worked for Ryan McCombie, Captain McCombie, and Ryan reported to Tommy. And then Tommy would go back. We had a group down in there uh, south of uh, Da Nang, and we had our group, which was north of Da Nang, a place called Tuinan. It's northeast of uh, Way City out on the ocean. Okay. So... Tommy's got this. He's got a uh, a, a project. A, he's he's yeah. got a mission that he has to do, and he he gets to pick somebody. Yeah, and he picks you. He picks me, but and because uh, he knew my background, you know, I had more combat operations than anybody else. And uh, sounds like that was a really smart decision that he made. Well, he wasn't. He wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't a really. I said it makes no difference, but he's a great guy. He's a great leader, and I love him to death. But uh, we were chosen, and the only two people who knew about the mission was Tommy and myself, of course. And, of course, it was planned by Commodore Shively what we had to do. I picked out the enlisted guys, which were Vietnamese SEALs. It's supposed to be a Vietnamese operation, but they want the Americans to make sure we got in and got them out, and they felt better about it. So I picked. So hand, there's five of you total. There's five of us total, okay. and I picked the two Vietnamese enlisted guys, which was Quan and Dang, which I had worked on previous 
uh, operations before in year, years before that, and they were very liable and very. Uh, they were always there when the fight got bad, and I'd been in many ba- gun battles with them, and they were always right there with us. Uh, the young officer was chosen. Uh, the officer that uh, I chose to take with us uh, two days before that had a, a, a boating accident, and he was unable to hardly see. So uh, we they sent up a young Vietnamese officer, a, a Vietnamese Navy SEAL, LDNN, and uh, he came up and he took Quan's place. Okay. I, I never operated with him before. So what we did, I told the guys what type of ammunition they were told, told them what to carry, and Dane was going to be the radio operator, and uh, Tommy and I had all the uh, call signs and everything like that. They didn't have; they just knew what equipment to take, and I, we didn't. They didn't know where we were going to go, so we left on this uh, cement junk, and we went almost 15 miles out to sea because they had. G- spies basically every time a boat would leave or they would say hey we're going north or south so we went so far out that nobody knew us and we of course we turned north so uh, help me out uh what's a junk i've seen that term uh these this was approximately about 38 feet long it was made out of concrete uh everybody said how does that float i said you tell me how an aircraft floats (laughs) but they call it a junk and it was uh uh they used it as a patrol craft up and down. So it was a military uh, boat, but it wasn't? Uh, yeah, it was, it was a Vietnamese like a boat. boat no, or, no, okay. no, no, it was a military Vietnamese boat. It had uh, a diesel engines in it. It had a fifty caliber machine gun up front. They had a okay. 81 millimeter mortar, and they used to p- patrol up and down the coast. And when they would use it, they had people on board, and they would search sampans trying to carry if they were bad guys or good guys. They would always, you know, they were, Okay. So that's what the giant was. So they knew that they saw them coming up and down the coast all the time. They just didn't know where they were. They used to. So we went north and uh, we got up there, and uh, we were going to be vectored in. And vectors, when they you have two ships out at sea, and they shoot a a vector by radar at the point our point of insertion. Well, during that period of time, without our knowledge, uh, the the NVA, the North Vietnamese Army, was trying to overtake. Quantree again in the big ship, which had eight-inch guns, the USS Newport News, which was a cruiser, had to leave the site, and they had this other ship, the USS Morgan, tried to vector us in, and the young radar operator was, wasn't paying attention, I guess, and he kind of sh- shot us uh, three degrees off to the north, and that actually put us 13 clicks north of our objectives, which actually put us into the DMZ, which the NVA had complete control over that up there. Nice. So, yeah, when you're that far out at sea trying to shine a laser, yeah. three degrees makes a big difference. Yeah, it, so, it, it yeah. does. So they were approximately 25 miles off when they shot it, and we were approximately five miles off the coast because it was already dark. And so we uh, we got into two IBSs, and IBS stands for inflatable boat, small and the group paddled us in, and we slid off in the water about a mile off the coast, and we swam on in. And then the the team, because we had another uh, group of SEALs, not uh, LDNNs, along with a guy by the name of Woody Woodruff, which was a Navy SEAL, outstanding young man, because we always kept a SEAL on the insertion and extraction of craft to make sure that if when we were trying to get a hot extraction, they would be there to get come in and get us. So, So real quick. How much weight are you carrying um, as you casually mention the fact that you swam a mile to coast? 
I mean, what are you carrying? I was carrying two low rockets, a Starlight scope. Of course, the Starlight scope back then was gigantic. Uh, I had uh, eight grenades. I had 780 rounds of 5.56. And, uh, my weapon, and of course, in my all your other your medical kits and all that kind of stuff. And I was wearing a pair of Levi's and a, <laughs> a, 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 a sweatshirt and uh, a navy blue sweatshirt with a camouflage top off because uh when it got really really hot and you're you're marching all night long that cotton sweatshirt would actually give perspiration and then you could actually you could keep you cooler than uh something else so are we talking what how many pounds do you think probably pretty close to 80 to 100 unbelievable Uh, Okay, so I'm out already on this trip. <laughs> um, but you've got five of you, you're dropped off, you swim a mile in, and you're 13 miles north of your target. Or 13 clicks, which is practically about the same yeah. thing. A thousand meters. And at this time, do, do your uh, your Vietnamese uh, colleagues, do they know what the mission is? Uh, they knew that we were going in, and they knew from where we were going in, uh, too. Basically, they really found out later on. Uh, when we got to the shoreline, Tommy told me to go up and, and check out an AO, which is area of operation. I got up there, and I had a little pin light, and I gave him the signal to come on up, and we sent guys up one at a time. We set up a perimeter, and I'm looking through the starlight scope up and down, a night vision goggle, and I said, I can't see the river north or south of us. So basically, we're coming in from the eastern flank. So Tommy asked me to say, why don't you patrol up there for a little bit and come back and see if you see anything, patrol back down. So I went by myself. I left my equipment off except for my weapon and a couple extra magazines. I slid my back pocket and uh, came back, nothing, and then went south and saw nothing. I said, the river can't be seen. And this river, it's not like the mouth of the Mississippi, but it's a really big river. So... uh, so, so you knew you were off target. We knew we were off target at that time. And correct me if I'm wrong, but your mission at that time was to go gather information about correct. potential prisoners of war, right? Well, what we were trying to do is what we call a, uh, it was, uh, we were looking for a body snatch and also gather as much intelligence as we can because mm-hmm. you get a lot more uh, intelligence by capturing somebody and for them to yeah. identify. And that's what we try to do all the time, even today and get more intelligence and to be able to have a safer insertion or extraction or know that there's no reason for our guys should go in there because they don't have the uh, right ability to go in there. So we said, Tommy, so us what we'll go ahead and do, we'll patrol in, and we did what we call a horseshoe. We went like so many clicks in, uh, then we went so many clicks to the north, and was so many clicks to the south. And uh, as we're patrolling around, we saw these big bonfires, and we saw these gigantic bunkers, and we saw tanks, and we saw Russian gun emplacements, and and we could hear the Vietnamese talking. And back then, I, I my Vietnamese was pretty good, and our poor Vietnamese, they could know exactly. And their eyes was about as size of saucers, you know. <laughs> so I put Tommy up. Tommy was on point, and I was rear security. Then when Tommy got tired, I'd go to point, and he'd get a rear security. Because running point is uh, a lot more strenuous than being rear security. Of course, everybody's eyes are open. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're trying to get back to your to the place you're really supposed to be. Yeah. Well, we're we had already gone north several clicks, so we just wanted to get back to the ocean and try to call for an extraction. So when we went north, we found a stream, 
and they have an 18-foot tidal range there. And so we got to the stream, and when we got to the stream, uh, we got into the water because the water was flowing out, so we knew the tide was going out out to the ocean. And that way it gave us uh, the ability to uh, shrink us in silhouette-wise and so right. having us grow up. I mean, everybody else looked like a Vietnamese but me. And another reason we could move fa- faster in the water because the water was making, and by by the the bounds of the uh, creek bed, you know, put us low. And also, we didn't have a problem of maybe tripping over something, yeah, you know, right. and, and waking the enemy. So, as we were uh, patrolling out, I, at that time I was on the point, and and we heard this noise, and it was a village, and you could hear the ocean. And we had this village; it was a quick reaction village, approximately. 50 to 75 people and I crawled up there and started counting the weapons that were outside the village and came back and told Tommy so we knew that our first complaint was to the south of us so we had the ocean on our eastern flanks to the south of us we had the village where it was our first threat of enemy to the to the north of us we had a a big uh, sand dune, which was actually a bunker. It actually had a tunnel down inside of it and it had many mm-hmm. little sand dunes. And to the west of it was a big lagoon that was open. Uh, basically, it was approximately maybe uh, a mile and a half to two miles wide of water, and it was approximately about four miles long. And so we said, okay, that's great. We'll be looking at the north up on the put Tommy and the radio operator up on top of this bunker. It was about 25 feet high. We had our eastern flank, we had the ocean. Our western flank, we had the lagoon. I moved out on the point where the enemy was, and then I placed the other guys uh, in different, so we could have a view of all sides. And then when did you engage the North Vietnamese? Uh, approximately uh, approximately uh, a little bit right before daylight, and we were looking through the starlight scope. So this is, this is you're, you, you're, you put in on the beach, at night, All right? You've marched around several uh, clicks, as for you said, hours, yeah. And then you're, 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 you're in the river. You're getting set up for daylight. And, and, and uh, what Tommy was on the radio on top, trying to get radio communications for an extraction. Okay. So Tommy was up there. I had Quan at my rear security with the starlight scope because I was far enough up I could see the village, which was approximately three hundred yards in front of were basically where we were. Then I had uh, Ty, the young officer, over on our flank where he could look up and down the beach, at least south that way he could, because the beach was, that time the tide was running out and um, and the the waves were crushing. Uh, This time, uh, Quan comes running around, one of the the enlisted guys said, Mike, uh, gave me the signs that there's two enemy coming down the beach. One was walking along the high water line which the high water line is uh, where all the junk trash lays at. The other one was down on the water line where the ocean was, which was approximately 150 feet away from each other. One guy was walking very fast. Uh, The other guy was, the one on the high water line was kind of walking slower because he was looking around. And so at that period of time, we made up our mind is that here, okay, we've got our intelligence. We know how they had brigades of uh, NVA up there. We make the body snatch. We get an extraction, capture these two guys, and get the hell out and go back, and our mission was done. Because what we're going to do is go ahead and extract, uh, lay up for the all-day rest, then come back in and do the mission and make sure we're inserted in the right place. 
but it went sideways. Uh, I took Ty, the officer, which was the largest. I had Kwan with me. I sent Ty about 50 yards down in front of me and behind a sand dam. He was about 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, he was the biggest of all the Vietnamese. He was strong, too. He's probably about 175 pounds, 180. And uh, I told him I would take this guy out and for him to go up and take this other guy out. And uh, uh, I gave him what I call a hush puppy. It's a silence weapon. It's taking out guards. I wanted him to capture the guy. So when my, his guy, I saw him pass me, and he kept on walking. And then when my guy came, I, I took the butt of my gun, hit him in the head, knocked him out. Quan secured him, uh, put tape across his mouth, tied him up, and secured him. Then I went down, and I was telling Ty to move out to get this other guy. And Ty came to find out he had never shot a weapon in combat in his life, which <laughs> we didn't know that. But <laughs> our fault. Take yeah. full responsibility. Uh, we were told him that he was combat ready. He'd been on many operations. He'd been on operations, but never been in a firefight. So that's not combat ready. Uh, the guy shot at Quan. Quan was running past. I mean, Ty was running past me back towards the bunker. I'm I'm passing Ty going this way because I know that guy. He'd only shot off three rounds, and he was heading to the village. And I figured if I could eliminate him. I could pick him up and carry him back and hide him, and we hopefully we still could get a safe extraction out. Right. Because what they used to do, they'd shoot weapons. Everybody didn't have a radio like we did in America. They, they'd shoot weapons. That's why they would identify different things. Of course, I didn't know what three shots meant. but um, he was, So you're he, hoping that you can take him out, uh, and all of a sudden the whole village doesn't come down. Doesn't come down on us. Right. So he got – I'm running at an angle – towards the village and he's running he's already he's he's about 150 160 ahead of me and i dropped to one leg and i took a shot and as he's running up the trail to the village i hit him twice in the back he falls to the ground then i look up and there's about 75 bad guys coming at us and tommy came down off the thing and he saw me running back across the creek bed and back towards where they were, and he was shooting a law rocket. It was an anti-tank weapon, which you see on TV. They kind of open it up. and Oh, yeah. And he was just he wasn't shooting at anybody. He was just trying to hit a tree to get the explosion to for them to drop down, and I could give me a chance to break contact and get back. And the firefight started. I uh, put Ty, I t- put Quan where Ty was, uh, or, and so he could watch my flanks and when they try to flank me. Uh, we put Tommy and Dang uh, back up on top of the the shelf, up on top of the bunker. I gave him a better view. I moved about 250 yards out to the point, and I put Ty as rear security to watch if there's any enemy coming from that direction to let Tommy know. So you've got five of you set up on this creek bed on the beach, and there's 75 north. Vietnamese coming out of the village at you. So, so Correct. what was what was your what were you been clocked at in your forty time having seventy five people run after you? <laughs> <laughs> pretty pretty fast. Was that the fastest uh, you've ever run in your life? Well, I tell you, it's funny what that adrenaline does to you. <laughs> <laughs> you start shooting at you, you always get your attention. I, I promise you. So, uh, the firefight lasted from the time that Tommy finally got radio operations and the Morgan. You were, but they didn't know where we were, and they were trying to shoot spotter rounds. And the firefight had started, and the reason we know how long was from the time that uh, Tommy said we're taking fire, 
And then from the time that Tommy did his, his last communications, he said fire for effect, and it lasted approximately two hours and 45 minutes. But when the guys were moving in there, you could tell they were trained. They're doing what we call a frog thing. They have like four or five guys here and four or five guys in a larger group over here, and they would try to shoot at you to get your, to get your head down. So what I would do, I would shoot about an inch because as they raise their head, I'd shoot about an inch into the sand. And I'd get a headshot almost every time. Then I'd roll over somewhere else and do the same thing. Then I'd draw back and I'd throw uh, – I had eight uh, hand grenades, and I'd throw a hand grenade that way. And when they tried to flank around the side, there's my buddy Quan over there shooting them down, laying them down over there. So And then there's Tommy and uh, Dang, even though Tommy's on the radio, he's, he could he'd say, hold, wait, and he would shoot you know, from up there. And then it consented. So it, when I was out on the point like that, and I had Quan approximately a hundred yards behind me, I knew exactly where he was. I didn't have to, so if anybody was over here or over there on my flanks or something, I knew they were bad guys. And uh, then I started. Of course, they started taking more, as I call real estate, and backed us up. I'd back Quan up, back us up, and. Uh, 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 I got back to about 25 yards from the big bunker, and Tommy said, we got uh, the USS Morgan coming to give us fire support. And at that time, I had about four or five guys right in front of me, and they tried to throw a grenade over, and that's that Chicom grenade right over there, and that wooden handle thing. It doesn't look oh, like yeah. an American grenade like the M26. You pull the pin, and you let the pin go, you got four, uh, four seconds, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000. It better be out there because it's going to go off. And uh, uh, But this thing here is very crude, but it works. But we had captured a lot of these grenades and used to pull them and just throw them and, and, and test them, see how long it'd take for them to go off. And it'd take anywhere from 22,000 to 28,000. And uh, so that's the way we would have a idea how the, the grenade walked. So they threw the grenade over on my side, and I threw the grenade, and I'm going 12,000, 13,000. The grenade comes back. <laughs> so I threw the grenade, and I'm going 20,000, 21,000. The grenade comes back, and I said, and I rolled over, and this was the fifth time it came over this way back. You're this throwing time, this back, grenade back, back and, and forth. Back and forth over oh the sand dune. <laughs> so the sand dune goes off, and I yelled, I just yelled. And I could hear Tommy said, Mike, buddy, he's at the top. He could see that I just laid on my back and I wasn't moving. And these guys came, two guys came over the top and two guys came around and yeah. I eliminated those four guys. And uh, So I, I, I don't mean to interrupt. I, I read about that. So mm -hmm. they, they come they come over the dune. Yeah. Did, 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 you, did you kill them with one shot off like as they came down? Or I mean, how... Is this multiple shots? Yeah, I, I, it was like bang, 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 okay. bang, bang, bang. Okay. So I usually tried to put at least two shots, but I never shot automatic. I never did. did. Okay. I always want to control my ammunition. So, so. There's, there were four, and I, I think I read somewhere where two of them fell dead on you, and then yeah. the other two oh, fell off the, side. the sides. Yeah. yeah. So that's amazing. So I was so basically at that period of time. Tommy started saying, hey, they're falling back. I said, what? I'm because I knew at that period of time they've already lost, I don't know how many people they'd lost. I know I had. So from 75, they're cut in half maybe? Uh, more, more than that, more than that. Because I knew that I had eliminated uh, right around 40 myself. Wow. And I don't know what Tommy, but I mean, I could see when I'd make the headshot, I could tell that, you know. Right. And um, 
So I told Tommy, Tommy's yelling at me, are you okay? I said, I got six, I had six shrapnel wounds in my back from the grenade. And I said, I'm okay, I, I'm still mobile. And I said, this is not good. He said, what do you mean it's not good? I said, to spend that much time to take all this real estate and they're falling back now means we're in trouble. And I looked across the lagoon and I, I said, look over there. And I could see people running and Tommy looked in the binoculars and I had already counted about 80 people to 100. And Tommy said he counted over 250. And actually it was an NBA battalion. They had over 600 bad guys surrounding us. Uh. They're going from the north and the south. In that period of time, Tommy said, well, the USS Morgan's online. I told him the fire from effect. Uh, you fall back to this sand dune, which was approximately 500 yards away. So I took myself, Quan and Ty, Tommy and Dane stayed up there. They, they uh, I retreat back to the sand dune, and then we were to cover them. So when Tommy came back, uh, he Tommy didn't come back, and Quan, uh, Dane came back and said, Mike Dowie's dead, and Tommy had been shot through the left temple, and the bullet had exited right over his uh, left eye, forehead, and it was his whole, he had lost the whole front part of his forehead, and his left eye was completely gone. So I went back. And, and he said, thought he was dead. Yeah, tells yeah. You he's and they told dead. me he was dead, so I said, stay here, I'll go get Tommy. And he said, no, Mike, and he grabbed me, Dane and Quan both grabbed me, he said, he's dead. I said, I'm going to get Tommy, you stay here, cover our retreat. So, so I'm curious on on that. Um, is that because no man left behind, or is it yeah, because you we, thought maybe he was alive? Or well, you know, I, I never I had to live with myself. I mean, if right, I, yeah. I didn't know if he was alive or dead. All I knew is that. But dang, you weren't going to leave him. I wasn't going to leave him. Right. Yeah, because I, I, uh, you think about what they would have done to his body. Yeah. So, so you go back up. You, I, you I eliminate some more bad guys that are taking yeah. over the thing. Tommy was shot through the head. Tommy had called the USS, New, uh, not the Newport News, but he talked with the Newport News, but the Morgan was firing for effect. It was a destroyer. And I had Tommy on my top of my back and after I eliminated these four bad guys up there. I'm going down the hill, then the first round, HE round, went off and blew me approximately 20 feet in the sky. It just blew us away with the concussion. And uh, long story short, I uh, went back, picked Tommy up, they saw me running with Tommy. I had him on my shoulders. I ran back the 500 yards. I got back. There's my two guys, Quan and Dang, covering my retreat. When I went back up, Ty thought he. I told him to get in the water. He had left us, and he was about an hour and something ahead of us. And he got picked up by Woody Woodruff. Woody wouldn't leave us. He kept looking for us and finally found us, found Ty. And uh, Ty said that Tommy was dead. I was missing in action. And Quan and Dang, because that's the last thing he saw. He said they're out in the ocean. Right. So we had two junks, and so one junk was looking for them. And that's, they were the actual ones that found me. Uh, I had Tommy tied in my back. I had Quan in front of me. And, and he had gotten one, shot. And he had shot. In the, in, the, in the butt. In the butt. And I had gotten shot through my left calf. Yes. And Tommy, of course, had the, his whole forehead gone. Okay, so you had taken shrapnel. You got shot in the calf. You had 500 yards, roughly, between the beach and the dune Correct. that Tommy was on. So you yeah. carried him back that way. In the meantime, you get blown up in the air 20 feet by friendly fire that that actually probably did what it was supposed to do. It yeah. kind of helped, helped your retreat. Uh, 
and then you swim. I fell back to the five, the, the the doom again. Another, I ran back with Tommy first. So I did 500 yards forward to get Tommy, 500 yards back with Tommy. Then we had about 300 yards to the ocean because the tidal range. So yeah. I told you it's 18 feet tidal range. So yeah. the surf was coming back in. And everybody said I did the life jacket. I didn't do the life jacket, as, as the book tells you. I I, I took Tommy, used him like a surfboard. I pushed him underneath the waves and pushed him back up. Because what happened with Quan, he, he didn't inflate his life jacket, but the wave picked him up and washed him back in, and that's when he got shot in the buttocks. Uh, and, and you, you, you in, and if, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you were swimming like that. Um, with those two folks for two, three hours? Approximately three hours. Three hours. Yeah. That's incredible. So I had Quan, Tommy tied to my back after we got out to sea, and that's when I saw Quan out there fluttering in the water, and I swam over and tied, uh, put Quan in front of me. I put his arms around my neck, and I put my arms underneath his armpits, and I stroked until we got out of the line of fire. So we got out of the line of fire, meaning they couldn't, we out of their right, the the range of the weapons mm-hmm. they shooting. That's when I gave first aid to Tommy, and then that's when I inflated Quan's uh, life jacket. And I inflated Tommy's a at, little at bit. At what point do you realize that Tommy's still alive? Oh, I knew he was alive when I when, when he we up, got blown up, up, picked him up. Okay. I knew he was alive then, but he kept going in and out, and I, I could feel his body was going in shock. Yeah, and uh, there's nothing you can do. Yeah. I mean, so we started. Uh, I couldn't see Ty. I could see Dang and Quan because Quan was in. I had taken his life jacket, tied it around my. Uh, I had my belt on and tied it around my belt, and so I towed him because he couldn't swim, and I had Tommy on my back, and and Dang said, "What do we do?" Mike, I said, "We swim south," and they said. So we started swimming, and we, with the grace of God, we were picked up about three hours later. Yeah, that's that's incredible. It's amazing. I'm, I'm just happy to know that there's people like you that are on our side. Well, yes. no, we, we have an unbelievable bunch of young men and women who give us the greatest things. So like I say, I, I don't think I deserve the medal, never will, because I knew Tommy would have done the same thing for me. He would have. He'd have got me out of there, or he'd have died training, and that's what it's all about. And that's the reason we push these kids so hard, and through the mental part, you know, it's not about there's no I in team. It's about we. It's about having the encouragement and the camaraderie of each other. You know that brothers will be there for you, no matter who it is or what it is. You're always going to be there for each other. In in about a year after this uh, this event. That's when you received the Congressional Medal of Honor at the White House from President Nixon. That's correct. And Tommy was still in the hospital. And he Tommy spent almost six yeah. six years going through he went through twenty nine major operations and redoing his face and plastic surgery and put different in his head. So I that's when I got put on Admiral's report. The Surgeon General of the Navy, which is a three star, put me on report. I asked, let me take Tommy to the White House, and I said, well, he deserves this medal as much as I did. And uh, and I said, I wish I could have Quan and uh, mm-hmm. Dang there, too, but they were still actually in Vietnam. Uh, uh, they said, no, you can't. So I went back at 11 o'clock that night, and I kid- kidnapped Tommy out of the hospital. <laughs> so, I ke- so I kept him for four days, and when I took him back, I was put on report yeah. by the surgeon general. <laughs> Well, going back to those suspensions in high school, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's a rule follower. Well, 
Admiral uh, Admiral Zuma said, Mike, in a short paragraph, why did you do that? And I said, sir, I didn't leave him in Vietnam, North Vietnam. I sure was going to leave him in that yeah. damn hospital when I received that medal. And so, it's probably important to point out that Tommy got healthy, goes back into yeah, military yeah, activity, and through his own bravery, uh, actually, he wins. Actually, Tommy's operation was before mine. Before, oh, before. before. Yeah. It was before. Yeah. Okay. And he received his three years after I received mine, along with Admiral Stockdale and Colonel Bud Day, U.S. Air Force, and Tommy. And they received their medals from President Ford. And it's, it, and it's the second time where a Congressional Medal of Honor recipient has was was you know granted that award as a result of saving another about it, recipients. Yeah, since the Indian or the Indian Wars. Yeah. For, for the, of course, the, uh, they didn't have any other medals. They only had the Medal of Honor and the George Washington Medal, which is the Purple Heart, up to 1906, and that's when they came out with the Navy Cross. Gotcha. All those medals. Well, so I, I want to be respectful of your yeah. time because I know you've got another event to go to. Uh, so before we wrap up here, can you just uh, share with us a little bit what your foundation is doing now? Yeah, uh, the foundation is a Michael E. Thornton Foundation, and I didn't like the way some of the foundations, so I put my name on it, and the buck stops with me. And uh, we put, as Connie explained to you guys, we put a Band-Aid on the problem. Uh, like, we gave out about $80,000 of checks, of 2000 5000 uh, $4,000. Uh, we've brought several families up from Houston that are vets that lost everything, and we helped them get a job. We paid, like, for their... Uh, it's a hand. It's a hand up, not a handout. So uh, it's basically to help them out and get back on their feet and help them find jobs. And uh, that's what my foundation does. So you uh, put in uh, a request uh, a lot to the North Texas Veterans System, or you call here. We do our due diligence on to make sure it's truthful. You got to make sure you have a DD two fourteen and and that. So we do that, and then we write a check. And we don't write the check to them. We write the check to the hospital or to the doctor or to the mechanic or to the apartment complex or or whatever, how we're helping these, these kids to the school. Mm-hmm. If your child is, you know, we like to make sure the veterans, children get a good education and we do scholarship funds. And like I do a scholarship in the honor of Eric uh, um uh, which lost his life on the weathering operation. Actually, we sent a young veteran's child to uh, Gonzaga, uh, prep school. As long as he has the grades, he keeps up the stuff, and we give a, a scholarship there. Then it's matched by another group, and so we give this kid a chance to get a great education at a very high school so that's what we do and my my beautiful wife rainy and connie uh they're the brains i just have to go around beat on doors and ask for money and it's funny how many people say yes so you've you had a chance to see our offices here and uh, we're the real thing but it's to see to give a check to a, a wife a young wife because I'm, I'm on the board for the Navy SEAL Foundation, Navy SEAL Family Foundation, the Marine Corps Law Enforcement Foundation. I work with all these different groups, and we give out checks, larger checks to them for scholarships. And to give a check to a young mom, to make, knowing their child's going to have a scholarship when they turn old enough to go to college, and what we do, we give this, and we have these other organizations pitch in because – I can make the decision in five seconds as long as I've got the due diligence done. Sometimes it takes them longer to go through the board before they vote on the money. So I'm, so I say I'm a Band-Aid on the problem, but I can reach out to the other ones and, and get the money. 
That's great. Well, you know, I think that Rob and I could sit here and talk to you for hours and yeah. hours, but uh, I know you have another event you have to go to. So thank you very much for sharing your story. Thank you for your yes. service to our country in the military and, and with what you're doing now. Really appreciate uh, it. Well, I really appreciate you guys coming up here and taking your time out of your busy day and looking very forward to speaking to the Salesman's Club on the 1st. And uh, remember, gentlemen, freedom is not free. Re- freedom is written in blood. God bless you, yeah. and God bless this great country called America.